This message is called Really Bad Fathers. And if you were going to think of who is perhaps the, the worst father of all time, uh, perhaps you may think of um, Darth Vader. Uh, but is he really? I mean, sure, he chopped off his son's hand. Okay, sure, he wanted to coerce his son to, to join him in the, the, the dark side. But at least he wanted to be with his son. Okay, so at least he, they wanted to spend time together. They were going to rule the galaxy together. Well, as we look at this passage, you're going to see some fathers in Genesis 6 that uh, make uh, Darth Vader look not so bad as we look at what is going on here. This is one of the most difficult passages in Genesis, one that commentators uh, say they, they disagree, and even good Christians disagree about the interpretation of this passage. Lots of ink has been spilled on it. I think it's also one of the most interesting passages in the book of Genesis. And it describes something unique from long ago, but I do believe it also has lessons that really do speak to us directly in the times that we live in now. So let's turn together Genesis chapter 6. Officially here, verse uh, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then this verse will be for uh, next time, but verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. These are events that happened uh, preceding the flood of Noah, which we will see continues on in Genesis uh, chapter 6. But we have to think to ourselves, what exactly is going on here uh, with these different statements that are being made? I read one commentator that basically said, well, there are no chapter divisions. And so really, it's just they had been talking about the genealogies, and this is just a continuation of uh, chapter 5, and saying uh, man began to multiply in the face of the earth, uh, and the land, daughters were born to them, and the sons of God, which he said, well, that's just human beings, saw that the daughters of man, those are just um, human women, um, you know, Eve comes from Adam, and that's how it goes, and they took wives as they chose. So this commentator said, I think this is just about uh, humanity is having children. And there's nothing really bad going on here. It's kind of, he said it's the calm before the storm when the, when the flood hits. But I think when we look at this, we see, no, this, there's something else going on here. Because we see God's reaction to this. There is the statement that his day shall be 120 years. We'll talk about what does that mean. And then there is the statement in verse 4 about the offspring that comes from this union and talks to the, the Nephilim. 
and the different statements that were here and the fact that this is right before uh, the Lord declares that this increased wickedness and corruption has come upon the earth. It really seems like something else really is going on, something very serious. So as we look at this, what we're going to do is we're going to split this message into two parts. The first part will basically be we're going to try and do some interpretation uh, what is going on in here? How should we interpret this? And I'm going to show you two main views, and I'll let you know which one I lean towards. And then the second part of this message, we're going to draw three main applications from this that I think are very relevant to our lives and our, our world that we're in today. So the big question, when it talks about uh, this, verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took their wives any as they chose. And who are the identities of this, the sons of God? This is not talking about the son of God. This is not talking about Jesus. That phrase is used in other ways as well too. Not with, not with capital S, the son, but sons of God. Uh, and then the daughters of man. So one view in this question is that the sons of God were the godly line of Seth and that the daughters of men were the ungodly line of Cain. So, this is a common view, actually. Um, even among many conservatives. I was actually surprised how many people I read that, uh, that leaned towards this view or took this view. And some that I, I wouldn't have expected leaned towards uh, this view. Um, I'm, not a, I'm glad I'm not a uh, betting, betting man because I would have uh, bet wrongly and lost the house on some of the people that I would have guessed would not have taken this view but, but did take this view. And I can see some reasons why uh, people do take this view. Uh, the second view we're going to talk about is, is difficult to grasp and is also, well, maybe difficult to accept, especially from our world view now that uh, we tend to, tend to downplay the supernatural. Uh, but also this first view has an advantage of flowing from the context. When we looked in Genesis 4, it talked about Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain was the brother who killed Abel. And then it talks about the descendants of Cain, and it lists those. And we see that these were, this was not a great family line. They kept descending into more and more rebellion against God and uh, living for uh, the things of this world and their own egos and not for the Lord. And then we saw Adam's, in chapter 5, his descendants that go through Seth, uh, the son that was given to them to replace Abel, and all the way down to Noah. And it's stated uh, that in this time, uh, and these people, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so, according to this first view, this first interpretation, what's going on is you had these kind of two basic streams of descendants of humanity, and one, uh, the descendants of, of Cain, they were, they were wicked, and you had, this, uh, you had the um, godly line of Seth, and they were good, but what happened is over time, the, the godly ones uh, started to kind of slip, and they started to notice, hey, you know, those girls over there, they're pretty good looking. And they began to not really care as much about what is, what is the quality of their hearts. What are they worshiping? What, are, what do they treasure in their life? Because they're really good looking. And that's the focus. 
And so they began to take wives uh, that didn't have character, that were uh, worshiping the wrong things, living for the things of the world that didn't love the Lord. And so now you didn't even have this, you know, one, you know, family line that, that was calling upon the Lord and that did love him because they were being influenced and they were being corrupted by other people that, that didn't, having joined to them. And this is something we see throughout Scripture that needs to be a warning, that uh, focusing on the wrong thing and who you join yourself with can have drastic consequences. Uh, we see that in the Old Testament with the people of Israel joining with the Canaanites and being corrupted by their ways. We say that with uh, King, King Solomon and the wives he took. And in the New Testament, it even tells us, 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And just the things that can happen when you focus on, on looks and not someone's character and their, their love for the Lord. So there are people that take this view, and again, um, godly Christians uh, that do. But I'm going to propose to you that I believe the second view has more in favor going for it. So in this uh, second view, it is something a bit more dramatic. The second view is that of the sons of God and the daughters of man, that this is a reference to fallen angels and human women. So that the sons of God that are listed here are not even uh, human beings, uh, but they are angelic beings. Now, one of the things that we have to remind ourselves is that according to Scripture, uh, the angelic beings are not human beings. They're a different created species. They had to be created by God. Everything is uh, created uh, by God. We don't know exactly when in the uh, creation timeline they were created because it focuses on uh, humanity instead, but they were created by God and hence sons of God in that sense, created by him. But they are not human beings and they are not uh, dearly departed human beings. So when you have a loved one that dies, uh, heaven does not get another angel. That's not how it works. I know that's a common thing to say, but uh, when someone dies, if they know Jesus Christ as their Savior, yeah, their, their immaterial part, their soul or spirit, uh, now in, since the uh, resurrection of Christ goes to be with the Lord in, in heaven in glory, uh, but that immaterial part, that is not an angel. An angel is a whole different uh, species of created beings by the Lord. And so you have some of these angelic beings that remained good. The Bible talks about the elect angels, but others that uh, went bad. And Satan, or uh, originally Lucifer, was the, the chief of them. And many of these uh, angelic beings followed uh, Lucifer in his rebellion, and they became the demons. And so, yeah, according to this view, this would be demons that were marrying and mating with uh, human women in some way and producing some kind of uh, defiled offspring that was coming from this, this union. Let me give you a few reasons for this. One is that the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament uh, very often refers to angels. And it's a very common description that is given. For example, 
in the book of Job. Book of Job at the beginning, uh, chapter 1, 6 through 7, says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And also at the end of the book of Job, uh, Job 38.7 talks about creation and says, When the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. So if you were a Hebrew reading this and you saw the, the sons of God, uh, the thing that you would think of first is that this is talking about some sort of angelic being. Uh, sometimes we refer to good angelic beings, but in this it would be talking about obviously fallen angelic beings. I think other clues that are in this text is that the offspring of these unions were highly unusual. I mean, notice what it says in 4. It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. We'll talk about what that means. Nephilim means the fallen ones. And there seems to be an association with the Nephilim with uh, having um, a great degree of might and power and even large size. Uh, giants are referred to as, as Nephilim. Uh, something maybe even supernatural about uh, these beings. And it relates these uh, as the ones that there's production or offspring of uh, this union because it says when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them these were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown so these powerful figures there's something very unusual about the offspring of this union we also see that God's response to this was pretty severe I think we see the response it shows that this was not something that pleased the Lord we see this in the Old Testament. I'm going to show you some New Testament passages as well that reference this. But it shows that this was something that was highly evil. This was something that was transcending, uh, crossing the boundaries of what ought to be. And there was a distinct response that God had uh, to what was going on here. Even in this passage, we see uh, right in the middle, it talks about uh, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his day shall be 120 years. That also says, uh, the Lord said that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And this is right before he gets into the flood. And so there's a lot of corruption in humanity, and this is one of the things that's leading to that corruption. This was also a common interpretation in Judaism and in the early church. So even before uh, the time of uh, Jesus Christ, this was a way that many of the Jews did interpret this. There were some uh, Jewish writings from between the uh, Old and the, the New Testament and other writings that reference this, ones that are not in your Bibles as, as Scripture. Uh, the book of Jubilees, uh, a book of Enoch, uh, references to this in uh, the uh, view of those that wrote the Septuagint, Philo, Josephus, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Also early Christian writers, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Tertullian Origen. Uh, so this was a uh, early and old view that uh, was out there. So it's not a, a brand new thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's right, but it does show that this view does go quite a ways back. But even more importantly, 
Uh, remember, Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. And there are indications, I believe, in the New Testament that are referencing this and the things that are going on. And I think they seem to indicate that this is the most likely interpretation. So the New Testament, I think, seems to indicate this. So let me show you, I got three passages here to, to look at briefly. I can't do a full sermon on all of these. Uh, two of them are from First Peter or Second Peter, and I have done full sermons on these. So you could go find those on the website if you wanted to and get the whole treatment. But First Peter, chapter 3, 18 through 20, let me read this. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I want to just stop there because this is a preface to what is coming up, but what a clear and beautiful explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, we are sinners. Uh, it's not just these people back then are sinners. We all have sinned in our heart. We all fall short of the glory of God. We come into this world with the default setting of being rebel sinners. And this is the solution for our sin problem the one and only solution that there is, that Jesus Christ also suffered once for sins. He died on the cross. He only had to do that once because when he paid that price, he paid it in full. And notice it says, the righteous for the unrighteous. So our salvation happens uh, because the righteous one, Jesus, who never did sin at all, he's the only human being to make it through life without sinning. He was fully human. Uh, before that, he was fully God. So when he came to this earth, he became the God-man, fully man and fully God. And he did what we could never do. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness, never sinning, always doing what he ought to do. But he went to the cross to be a substitute for sinners like me, like you. And so that by putting your trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord as your Savior, there can be this swap that happens. That the instant that you, in saving faith, uh, turn to him and put your trust in Jesus Christ, that your sin is credited to him and he paid for it on the cross. He didn't die for his own sins, he died for our sins. And not only that, but his perfect righteousness is credited into your account. You know, in the same way that somebody could make a deposit into your, uh, your checking account, into your account, ultimately before God, his righteousness is credited into the account of believers. And so that's how we're saved. That's the only way that we're saved. If you're trusting in your righteousness, I hope that you will uh, forsake your own righteousness as what you are trusting in and rely upon him alone. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Because that's the ultimate thing that we need is reconciliation with the God that created you, the God that loves you, the God that cares for you, and the God that is your, your Father in heaven. But it goes on and it says, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. We see here fallen angels and the flood being linked together in the same passage. The word here that is for uh, spirits, 
is um, used in the Bible usually to describe supernatural beings. So this is one kind of hint of something going on here with, with angels uh, being linked to the days before Noah. But in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, I think it's even more clear some of these links that are being made. 2 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 5, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and the word there for hell is Tartarus, so it's not the usual word for, for hell or where the angels are sent. This isn't the abyss. It's, it's not the final hell, the lake of fire. Actually, no uh, angels are there quite yet, but it seems to me to be something unique, a, um, a place of permanent confinement for some of these angelic beings. Because it says, uh, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. This wasn't a situation where they could uh, be there for a while and then come out, like some that were sent to the abyss and they could come out after a while. They were kept there until the end. And it says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought them through a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And another verse that is similar to this is found in the book of Jude, only one chapter in Jude, so verse 6. And it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, where they were supposed to be, uh, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Jude there is saying something similar to what Peter said, that there, it's definitely about angels at this point, it's something about them violating boundaries and doing something that they definitely ought not to be, have been doing. And a transgression, transgression that was uh, so great and that God dealt with it in a unique way and that those angels, those fallen angels that sinned in this way uh, were put into permanent confinement until uh, the, the end judgment would come. Thinking about this, I think... The references here in these two verses, I think they can't be to all of the angels who sinned. Okay, so Satan and the rest of the demons, this can't be referenced, I think, to all of them because all of them have not been placed in this state of permanent confinement. It would be great if they were right now. There will be a time to come during Christ's thousand-year reign when they will be confined uh, but even then, it's, they'll be released at the end of the thousand years for a short while. But these are being treated in a distinct way. And we know this because, well, we know that there is uh, the work and activity of evil spirits in this world today. And we know this from experience, but we also know this even more from Scripture and what it states. Remember I read to you Job chapter 1. And Satan was able to, to come before the Lord. And the Lord had asked them, you know, where did you come from? And Satan had said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. So he was not confined at this point in time. And even in New Testament times, uh, we know that the devil is not confined yet because in 1 Peter 5.8, it states, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So this is telling us as believers that we need to be 
aware. We need to be watching for uh, the devil and his forces and all of their schemes and realize that, you know, they'll be doing sneaky things. They'll be, you know, under the surface, uh, but trying to attack humanity because God loves humanity and Satan hates God. So he's going after what God has created, after what God loves, because ultimately he hates the Lord and is rebellion to him. But it says he prowl, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking you to devour if he could. So I think there's good reason to believe this is referring to something going on with these angelic beings and they are taking human wives and cohabitating with them and producing offspring. Now it does create a lot of questions and there's a lot of mystery here as far as exactly how this works and there are different uh, takes that people might have on this. Uh, the way that I view this um, there's a few things that I, I consider. Angels can at least temporarily take physical form. Uh, we know that from Scripture. Uh, we know that we're going to see that in the, in the book of um, Genesis. Uh, they can take human form at least temporarily. It's not like a real human body like Jesus Christ took. Uh, but it also does state that, uh, that angels don't procreate. Luke 20, 34 through 36, Jesus talks about this. And I also believe that demons, they can't actually create life. Um, and they also, they, I mean, biologically, I think they can't produce human reproductive materials that would be needed, not to get to birds and bees, you know, with you here, um, but the reproductive material from a man that would be needed to actually produce human life. So, Again, there's a lot of mystery, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but it seems to me more likely that the demons were taking possession of human beings, uh, maybe even some powerful human beings, human rulers. That was a pretty common thing uh, that we see in the Old Testament that a lot of these you know, wicked human rulers uh, then and maybe today uh, have uh, demonic forces behind them. Uh, but this in a very literal way, maybe being possessed by them and therefore impregnating women through these men, but in such a way uh, that the offspring were affected uh, biologically through this. Again, I told you, interesting passage, uh, highly debated, but uh, definitely very interesting. Now, verse 3, notice it also says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. So what does this mean, the 120 years? Well, two kind of main views, and I see people being kind of split on this. And I think originally I thought, well, the first view made sense, that uh, we saw that the life expectancy of people in the original creation was very long. And so people were living 900 years, and we know that that's not how long people live today. So it seems that maybe what was going on is God was saying, I'm going to shrink the lifespan of people and it's going to come down to a max of 120 years. And that seems to fit more what, what we tend to be used to. Not that many people make it to 120, uh, but that seems to be pretty much the, uh, the rough top that we see. A problem with this, view of lower lifespans, is that even after the flood, we're going to see that uh, lifespans were still pretty high. It took a little while for it to taper down. So if this view is correct, it means that 
um, eventually it was going to get down to 120 years, but maybe not right away. So, for example, Abraham, according to Scripture, lived to be 175 years. Uh, Moses, who was the human author of Genesis, lived to be 120. The other interpretation of this uh, is then that this was a 120-year reprieve for humanity that mankind was wicked and the Lord was saying that he was going to wipe them out with the flood, but that would happen in 120 years. And so I think that has a lot going for that interpretation, that this was kind of the, the countdown, I'm going to give humanity 120 years uh, to repent. Not only for Noah to use a lot of that time to, to build the ark, but also that mankind was going to have opportunity, that God was going to be patient with them and they could make the decision, are they going to keep on sinning or would they turn to the Lord? That God wasn't just doing a snap decision with them, but giving 120 years to repent. Of course, but did they? Jesus in Matthew 24 writes, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just talking about him as the Son of Man one of his titles. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That just like people in those days, they were focused on their life here and now and the good things in this life that they could go after, that most people in the world today are seeking the goods of this life and what they can go after and are completely unaware that in an instant things are going to change when Jesus returns. Another thing we need to deal with, verse 4, the Nephilim. Who are these, the Nephilim that are being talked about? Again, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. As I said, Nephilim means the fallen ones. They seem to be unnaturally large in size. We know this uh, because it's used as a term for giants in Numbers 13, 32 through 33. And one of the things we need to just, uh, there's a little question. What does it mean when it says in verse 4, and also afterward? Um, now, this is, again, something where people disagree and there's a little bit of mystery in this. But some things that I, I think I'm pretty sure on is that God didn't fail in the flood. So if God's purpose was uh, to um, wipe out everyone except for Noah and his wife and their, and their sons, the, the eight of them that survived through the ark and the animals that he took on with them, then I believe that the Nephilim that were before the flood were all wiped out. And to me, it also seems that God gave severe consequences to these angelic beings, putting them in this type of, you know, spirit, uh, demonic, um, solitary confinement, permanent prison, that those consequences were to shut this type of behavior down. Now, possibly, Numbers, uh, when it talks about this, indicates that there was a reoccurrence of something like this that happened after the time of the flood. Uh, so Numbers 13, this is when Joshua and the, the spies went out uh, to Canaan to scout out the land. And it says, So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, 
The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So this could mean that maybe there was still some kind of a recurrence of this thing happening uh, afterwards. I think another possibility which I lean towards is that Nephilim here is used as a, after the flood as a reference to giants, or at least the people of great size, but not necessarily giants produced in the same way as the Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6. Maybe in the same way that someone might refer to someone today as a, a titan, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're an actual titan of uh, Greek mythology. I also want to factor in that the ten spies were exaggerating. They themselves weren't really as small as grasshoppers. Uh, so they were looking at these people who were quite a bit larger, and maybe that's what they meant. But there's good Christians that disagree on this. Let me finish with some applications, just real briefly. Interesting passage, uh, different things. We could spend all our time just you know, debating and wondering, but this was written also for our instruction. One point that I want to get to this, and it works out well, this is Father's Day. It matters what kind of father someone is. Humanity, see here, was brought down by really bad fathers. Sure, there were other things going on, but what's pointed to here is that you have fathers of, of demonic quality. And you say, well, those fathers were demons. But you know, for many fathers today, unfortunately, some are close enough. Fathers matter. And so I think some of the things that we need to take from this is, is men. We're honoring you as fathers. It's Father's Day. What kind of father are you? We each need to look into our hearts to assess what, what is good, what are the ways that we need to improve, and with God's help, to be improving in those things with our hearts, with our loves, with our actions, our relationships, with our kids, with our families, those that are around us? What are the examples that we're setting? What are our kids seeing us love and go after? Are they seeing us place Jesus Christ as number one in our lives and in a way that with our actions and with our choices uh, affirms that, yeah, Jesus Christ is number one? Or do we not care about Jesus? We don't talk about him very much. We barely think about him in our lives oftentimes show that really there's a lot of other things that are higher on the totem pole of our authority, of our uh, priorities, than Jesus Christ is. So men, what kind of father are you? To the unmarried guys here, and to the, the younger guys, what kind of father are you going to be? What kind of man are you growing into? We have a shortage in this world and in this nation of godly men that will love their wives like Christ loved the church, men that will be humble servant leaders with Christ-like attitudes, but willing to, to lead, to take responsibility, but in a humble, gentle way like Jesus Christ, that are willing to do uh, the work, the personal discipline, the self-discipleship of, of caring for their family, of providing for their family, of loving their family, of nurturing their family, not just physically, but spiritually as well. Don't wait until you're married to start to grow into that kind of a man of God. Be working on this now 
so that you're the type of guy that a, a young Christian girl that's looking for a godly man would be happy to find. So you're the type of guy that, uh, that, that parents are going to be glad that their Christian daughters will marry. Grow into that type of guy, but you have the whole world pushing against you in the wrong way. Wrong views of, of uh, what it means to be a man, masculinity, many that don't even understand it at all. And I would say, girls, what kind of fathers do you want for your kids? For those of you that are uh, still uh, looking for who that special someone might be one day, what are you looking for? And for all of this, with guys and girls, uh, you know, we can be looking at the superficial things of this world, the looks, the, the status, uh, the popularity, and these are not the things that are going to matter the most. So many of these things, they don't last. They're not that important. But look for somebody that loves the Lord, that is going to teach your kids to love Jesus Christ, that is going to model that, that is going to be uh, a good uh, husband to you and a good father for your children. Thinking about this example of, uh, you know, these demonic fathers. And, you know, it talks about their offspring as being men of renown. You know, in the world's eyes, they were probably very successful. They were powerful, influential, strong, you know, beings. And in the eyes of the world, they probably thought, well, hey, these guys, they have everything that should be wanted. Everything that was good in the eyes of the world. But they're wicked in the eyes of the Lord. No matter how much attention you give your kids, fathers, if you turn their hearts against God, you are not a good father. If you turn their hearts against the Lord into something else, some kind of idol, you are doing the devil's work for him. You could be a father that buys your kids everything they need, everything they want. You could be a father that goes to every sporting event. You could be someone that, a parent that affirms them in anything they desire with unconditional regard for any choice they could possibly make. But if you're not teaching them to love the Lord and modeling that before them, you're not hitting the mark. Remember, the offspring in Genesis 6, very successful in the world's eyes. But if you teach your kids to know and treasure Jesus, that is the most important thing. The most demonic thing you could do isn't to teach your kids to rob banks and, and cook meth. It would be to teach your kids to not love Jesus above all else. And also, notice that humanity was corrupted by corrupting marriage and sexuality. Think about something that is relevant to us today. These are fundamental things for the design of humanity, of society, of our personal lives. God created uh, with his design, which is beautiful and good, for one man, one woman to come together. And in that union, uh, being married first and then having children and then raising those children uh, to know and to, to love the Lord. This is God's good design and it was beautiful. And think of all the ways that uh, evil in this world is attacking that design, changing the order, changing uh, the meaning of marriage, taking uh, sexuality and ripping it away from, from marriage in that context where it is good and beautiful and using it as something selfish. 
And we think of this with June, with um, LGBT pride, but it's not just that. Think of all the other ways that we have taken the concept of marriage and made it into something that is not about glorifying God, that is not about the good of uh, society and the good for children, but basically made it into a, a super expensive party to celebrate uh, just the romantic union of two adults instead of what it ought to be and the seriousness of it as a, what's meant to be a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. And we live in a society, notice when we reference these angels, how many of them, uh, they left their place of authority, they were crossing boundaries, they were transgressing. We live in a society that glories in transgressing boundaries. And finally, if the interpretation is correct that God was giving humanity 120 years to respond before the flood, how will you respond to the time of mercy that God is giving you? Because you know what? It's a good thing you're not in hell yet. No matter how bad your day is, this isn't hell yet. You're being given a time of mercy, a time of goodness, a time in this life that you have that you can respond to the gospel, that you can receive Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness that he offers to you. God gave humanity a, this in Noah's day a 120-year reprieve until judgment would come. He's being merciful to you, but how are you going to use it? And in the same way that almost all of humanity wasted that 120 years, most of the people in the world today are wasting all of the days and years that God gives them to repent and come to him. Romans 2 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. From passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you do, listen to this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You can continue in rebellion, and that's just taking God's mercy for granted storing up more wrath for that day to come. Or I plead with you, turn to Jesus Christ who came to save sinners so that his righteousness can be your righteousness and so that he, having taken your sin upon the cross, can give you complete forgiveness and that he can bring you to the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words from Genesis, this interesting account, Lord. Let us not just look at it as something interesting, full of mysteries and questions, but help us to think through all the ways that this applies to our lives. Lord, as fathers, help us to be the fathers that you call us to be, Lord God. Give us mercy and help and forgiveness as we seek to, to be that type of, uh, those type of men, Lord God. Lord, we thank you for your good gifts of, of marriage and, and sexuality, Lord. Help us use them according to your design. 
uh, not casting them aside to do our own thing in rebellion, but embracing what you have designed as good, beautiful, and true. And Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your forbearance. Because of that, we had opportunity to be saved. And I thank you for everyone here that has already trusted Jesus. And Lord, for anyone that is still on the way, Lord, may they turn to you for forgiveness before it is too late, before that day of judgment suddenly comes. Move in their hearts. Draw them to you, Lord God. And may you be rich in your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.